I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and it is hard to feel dignity if you don't have any money if you're down and out how does this sound build nest eggs for all american citizens without spending an additional dollar or raising the federal deficit after years of work with real people and not numbers our guest today bob friedman finds that there is a way to as he said find strategies that might move millions of families toward economic independence by virtue of their own ideas and energy, end of quote. Of course, on first read, this sounds a bit pie-in-the-sky-ish, but Friedman argues that through public policy development and advocacy, it can happen. In his new book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone, Friedman argues a few thousand dollars is all it takes to start closing the racial wealth gap and make tools available to lift all Americans out of poverty. And some early praise, uh, Gloria Steinem uh, says that this book is proof positive that low income and very poor people will start businesses, seek education, buy and keep homes given any chance. And uh, Manuel Pastor says, uh, Uh, This is a highly readable contribution to a necessary debate about how to craft a more inclusive and sustainable American economy. And I like this one from Ezra Levin of Indivisible. Bob Friedman has been fighting for economic justice since before it was cool. Bob Friedman, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Thank you so much for having me on. Robert Friedman is founder and chair emeritus of Prosperity Now!, formerly the Corporation for Enterprise Development, a national economic development nonprofit founded in 1979. He helped create the U.S. Microenterprise and Savings and Asset Building Fields and the International Enterprise Development and Child Savings Fields. He lives in San Mateo, California. And uh, again, thanks for being with us, Bob. America has a lot of challenges, which are also opportunities. I believe the two most pressing are global warming and the wealth divide. Both seriously threaten our ability to survive as a republic. Growing up in a prosperous America in which there actually was a sense of shared prosperity, the fact that in 2019, 80% of the population lives from paycheck to paycheck is, is startling. There used to be a big middle class. A Republican form of government, of course, is imperiled when there is such a huge wealth gap. It may be hard to believe, but again, we used to have a large middle class in America. So what can be done? What is realistic? Of course, with any great problem, there's no one simple magic wand. Our guest, Bob Friedman, proposes something a bit different from the idea of a universal basic income now gaining popularity. 
What he proposes is a universal savings program, which can be made to come into existence by redeploying federal tax incentives, which so grievously currently fuel the wealth divide. Uh, It's just there to exacerbate it. Our guest points out that, in fact, current policies will deliver a startling $160,000 a year to millionaires and $226 to working families. Unchecked current tax policy will increase the wealth divide by more than $1.5 trillion every two years. Of course, America's founders fought a war to separate us and free us from rule by such economic royalists. But here we are. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Bob Friedman. How did you come to write this book? Well, I'm getting toward 70, and I thought I should pass on the lessons of 40 years of work, um, which really uh, proved um, kind of what you've said, that given a reasonable opportunity, often as little as a few thousand dollars low income, even very poor people, will save start businesses, create jobs, go to college, become skilled workers, buy and keep homes, create economic futures for them, themselves, their families, the community, and, and the country. And I believe that real economic development comes bottom-up in this country. Uh, and as you mentioned in your, I must say, excellent uh, overview, Uh, of the main points of the book, um, we know how to unleash this this untapped productive capacity of the American people. Mm. Um, But we need to acknowledge at the uh, outset that um, most Americans, uh, including large, super large majorities of people of color, women, um, are essentially locked out of the economic mainstream. Um, 54% of Americans faced by an unexpected $400 bill um, would would have to resort to borrowing money. Uh, You touched on it as well, the effects of being in debt, which has increased fivefold over the last 20 years for the poorest fifth uh, of Americans, um, is not just economic, being sidelined economically, but is also psychological. If you're paying last year's or last month's bills, you're not really looking at the future and you're probably not feeling great about yourself. Uh, People do things that they think they can do. Uh, Mm. And again, over... 40 years of pretty rigorous exploration and um, rigorous evaluation, we've proven that, you know, with thousands, hundreds of thousands of examples that given an opportunity, uh, people will take it. That sure is different from the uh, ugly, frankly, racist picture that gets painted so often, you know, to describe people who happen to find themselves in uh, desperate economic shape. But uh, interesting that your research proves that wrong. Prosperity Now, the organization that you founded and led for decades, not only devised strategies to give families a foothold in the economy, but as we said, it tested and evaluated these ideas. Tell us about some of the projects that Prosperity 
prosperity now generated and, and how it tested them? Well, in the uh, 1980s, uh, with the self-employment investment demonstration, we partnered with five states uh, scattered across the country um, to see whether welfare mothers might want to start businesses um, and, in fact, found that given an opportunity and the ability not to be penalized <laughs> for doing that, um, many did. And they reduced uh, their dependence on welfare, um, increased income sixfold, uh, and, and acquired assets and created jobs. Uh, in the 1990s, we... Um, launched the American Dream demonstration, um, which was a large-scale test of something we called individual development accounts, which one welfare mom described as, oh, I see what you mean, a 401k except for me, essentially matched savings on a sliding scale for home, business, college, um, home repair, a few other asset-building Incentives, and we found in that that uh, again, given the opportunity, uh, and um, that even um, the lowest income participants, people living on less than nine thousand dollars in a family of four, Whoa. saved at about the same um, the same amount and about three to four times the rate of higher income people. They saved not because it was easy and not because it didn't involve sacrifice, but because it um, was the price of hope and the price of stability. Um, now, a hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand people have gone through, taken advantage of individual de development account programs. They've started businesses, they've bought and kept homes, um, they've gone to college. So, and, and I think, uh, if I could go back sure. to, I think the right, and often even the left, has had low expectations of low-income people. So, you know, I'm a great supporter of the safety net and social services that was, you know, our major uh, attempt to deal with poverty in the 20th century. But in all of those programs, um, you get penalized for doing any of the things you need to do to move forward economically, to, you know, learn, earn, yes. save, invest. Uh, in all those programs, there are asset limits so that if you acquire even a few thousand dollars, you lose eligibility and benefits often precipitously. I think the challenge for the 21st century is to create the latter, to make sure that everybody in this country has an economic place to stand and ability to take their dreams and talents and work to the marketplace. I think, you know, if we live up to the promise of America that everybody gets to play, uh, we'll all do better because of it. Wow, there's so much to uh, follow up on there. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. 
The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Robert Freeman, who, author of a new book, A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. And you're certainly right. You know, we've heard people on the right talk about how a lot of these well-meaning programs from, you know, the Johnson era uh, actually end up locking people in to poverty because, as you said, some of the, uh, you know, the, the caps on assets and things like that. And it, that's certainly not the intention, but it seems to be the unintentional effect uh, all too often. But given an opportunity, these the savings accounts, as you say, you know, we, we can't uh, shortchange and, and have real low expectations of people who happen to be in poverty. But given an opportunity, I mean, you know, we all know people, immigrants, for example, recent immigrants, uh, some of the people that uh, Trump obviously hates, tend to be very hard workers and very good uh, investors and and honest people. They want to make it like anybody else. Uh, So prosperity now, the money that was... Where, where did the money come from to help start these uh, savings accounts for people? How did that work? Well, um, to demonstrate them, we relied uh, on foundation money and philanthropy uh-huh. Uh-huh. to demonstrate what was possible. And then um, we uh, sought and, and often won policy changes at the state local and federal level, uh-huh. uh, and there were, um, were, there were some new policies also instituted, um, and I think really, now what I would say is we know how to do this, and, and you know, the, the data and the evidence that this is possible, that uh, the community mm-hmm. practices, the public policies, the private market interventions, um, is there in the records of the last 40 years, but it's also in our history. I would argue that the policies in our history that have created the most significant, most enduring, most widely shared increases in economic well-being were investments in the common genius, universal public education, the Homestead Acts, to which still a quarter of American families can trace their wealth. The creation of the 30-year mor- fixed-rate mortgage by the federal government, which brought home ownership into the purview of the middle class. And then maybe the greatest was the GI Bill, mm-hmm. where we said to mostly the men <laughs> who uh, f- fought for our freedom and defended the country in World War II, we'll give you low or no interest business loans, home loans, college loans. Um, the GI Bill transformed the country. Uh, yes. You know, created 220,000 businesses, 5 million new homeowners, 9 million new college students. It democratized education. It tripled the middle class in 10 years. Mm. Um, I think we should look to our history. I have to say there is a dark side to each of those uh, magnificent investments, which was they tended to leave out people of color and women. So, you know, the 17 million women that were the arsenal of democracy never benefited, by and large, from the GI Bill, nor did 
particularly African Americans in the South, because administration of the bill was left to state and local officials uh, operating then in, under Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason that today African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, many Asians have a few cents. I mean, literally six, seven, eight cents for every dollar white zone. You know, I believe wealth is a goal, but it's also an essential input in a capitalist society. You need capital. Absolutely. And to have it specifically out of bounds for large groups of people, I mean, one can see, you know, people didn't even used to call it racism because that was just, it was how, you know, white people felt and how the government worked and, you know, favoring certain people and certain interests. And, you know, I think this does go back to, to values, you know, as with any family budget, our federal tax policy reflects values in action. How much money does the U.S. government invest in the productive capacity of American households as compared to to whom does that money go, really? Right. Well, I looked specifically at uh, $700 billion that we spend through the uh, federal tax code, individual taxation, that really is aimed at encouraging families to build wealth. Home mortgage interest deduction, preferential rates on capital gains, um, pension fund exclusions, 529 college savings programs. These are you know, tax expenditures designed to encourage business creation, job creation, home ownership. Uh, and the like, um, but as you described in the beginning, uh, they are structured in a way that rewards the rich, misses the middle, and penalizes the poor. <laughs> what a great strategy. Um, it's upside down, but we're spending a huge amount. This average is out to $2,200 for every man, woman, child in the country every year. You know, I, I ask you to imagine what different... Uh, and. Uh, Invite your reader, your listeners, uh, to imagine what difference would it make in their lives if they had an additional twenty-two hundred, or if you know we distributed that on a progressive basis, uh-huh. and the way our system is so, supposed to operate. Right. I really believe that um, again, looking at uh, what we know from past experiments, uh, if we invested in everybody <laughs> rather than only gilding the lucky few, yeah. we would get millions more businesses, jobs, homes owned. Hmm. Uh, hope. Well, as an old friend, Fred Harris, said a few weeks ago in defining uh, his interest in politics, and he ran for president, uh, he says, when everybody does better, everybody does better. <laughs> I think it's... Right. It's, uh, well, I... Uh, <laughs> I think that's exactly right. And we know, you know, again, just going back to the GI Bill, just the education benefits. Every dollar that we invested in the GI Bill came back sevenfold. Sevenfold. So we got uh, $7 in return. I think this is the way an economy grows, by adding people and their productive capacity to it. All the net new jobs created in this country over the last 30 years were created by new businesses. 
and that's by people across the income spectrum. Well, there have been, I know, you know, internationally, there are various nonprofits, and I must say, to see all these, you know, worthy charities and nonprofits have to go begging and spend so much of their time and energy begging for, well, a few thousand dollars. Uh, their microloans have done wonders internationally. And and we, I don't think we've done it domestically, but is that under the uh, category that, that, you know, of, of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean... It is. We actually have done it in this country. It was kind of an outgrowth of the women's movement. We didn't call it microenterprise. We called it (laughs) self-employment. But we uh, set up programs, I mean, really hundreds of groups around the country, uh, provided basic business planning and then access to small loans of you know, generally under $5,000, at least for the first loan. And it was actually, you know, the title of my book, uh, what, A Few Thousand Dollars, was drawn from looking back at the microenterprise experience in this country um, and then also the results of the American Dream demonstration and also a big demonstration we did on... child savings accounts. Uh The finding there was that poor kids with a college savings account in their own name were three times more likely to go to college and four times more likely to finish than those without, even with less than $500 in the account. Mm. So it wasn't just the money. It was the expectation. If you Uh, think you're uh. going to graduate or go to college, you probably will. Well, I was just going to ask, there, you, you have five specific savings accounts, program of five, d- designed to create millions of new businesses, jobs, new homeowners, college graduates, and skilled workers. Well, tell us, take a few minutes to tell us about those five specific savings accounts uh, that uh, are addressed in the book. Sure. Um, so I, I talk about universal savings accounts which would be accounts to match the first $500 in savings. Again, people need some kind of buffer from the everyday accidents and illnesses. I think we came face-to-face with this need uh, in the government shutdown and the realization that most of those 800,000 furloughed uh, employees were a paycheck away from defaulting on their mortgage or rent or being able to buy clothes, we need the economy, and certainly the household economy, is resting on way too um, thin (laughs) ice. Um, We need to rebuild savings. Yes. Um, So the universal savings accounts are aimed at doing that for everyone. And then I have generation accounts, which are aimed at education and really children's accounts, and are, um, again, built on this uh, notion uh, or this finding that, you know, at age 18, you're either going to college or not. We need to intervene before that. And also what's uh, getting kids kicked out or 
being unable to finish college is not tuition so much. It's the uh, unexpected bills. Uh. Um, and my generation accounts involve both initial deposits and then match savings uh, designed to enable even the fo- poorest fifth of kids disproportionately kids of color, um, to acquire up to $50,000 by the time they're college age. I think we could close, they alone could close the racial wealth divide in a generation. And they've been developing bottom-up around the country, their college savings programs, uh, children's development account programs now in 42 states, covering half a million kids that will probably double in the next year and a half. We know how to do this. Um, and then uh, home accounts. I mean, home ownership is still the dream of most Americans. 89% of Americans say they want it. Uh, and, of course, a house is much more than a house, uh, than a building. It's, it's a home. It's a place where you develop skills and dreams um and prepare um and again we you know 120 years ago only 10 percent of americans owned their own homes because you had to come up with the full price of the home Uh on day one we democratized that um but we did it in an uneven fashion so that today uh, roughly three quarters of whites own their own homes, but only 42% of African Americans because of discrimination, because of redlining, Mm -hmm. um, because of this basic uh, wealth inequity going in. Again, we, um, there are great uh, examples, the Community Advantage Program of self-help bought uh, 52,000 uh, low income, average income, $28,000 a year, uh, people into home ownership. Um, so matched home accounts, matched business accounts. Um, again, it's new businesses that are creating jobs. People create, uh, you know, uh, start businesses with personal savings, savings of friends, family, associates. We need to rebuild those savings for that. And then the final account I offer is what I call prosperity accounts, or think about it as a GI bill for the 21st century, but this time for everyone uh, based on, on match savings, and where I combine all of those uses, because really our lifetime course is one of attempting different, you know, building different assets. So First, you build your human resources with education, and then maybe you start a business or you buy a home. Homes are the major source of most household wealth in the country, uh, and eventually you build toward a secure retirement. A lot of uh, specifics there, and one of the most attractive things to me, and that kind of flies in the face of, of traditional liberal you know, poverty programs is that this is bottom up, you know, it's putting the people who are most affected by it in the driver's seat kind of to help people, uh, uh, you know, have something 
that they can decide and they can take the initiative rather than it all coming from the top down where people feel, you know, I, I think about one of the problems with the the housing effort that was done, you know, in the mid to late 60s, the urban renewal and the, and the housing and urban development programs. People who lived there had no say over it. They didn't feel like it was theirs and they didn't exactly. have an investment in it. Uh, and and that makes it so, you know, that's a very, very difficult, if not impossible, hurdle to climb. But if people can buy their own home, wow, that's entirely different and it increases the dignity. I'm so glad you picked this point up because uh, I think it's it's maybe the core uh, of the book. I was told early on in my career that development is something people do, not something done to them. Yeah. <laughs> and and my experience is every time we've bet on the productive capacity, the goodwill, the hard work, the ideas of all people, including low-income people, very poor people, and uh, people of color, women, they have amazed us with their ingenuity. Um, again, people make mistakes, and not everybody does the right thing, but overwhelmingly, uh, people want to build a decent life for themselves and their children. You know, people work two, three jobs to be able to do that in a marketplace where wages have stagnated. Um, I think we need to restore our belief in each other and and really go back to the basic promise of America. I love um, something uh, Abraham Lincoln said in his 1863 message to Congress, where he said, you know, the primary responsibility of government is to raise the economic condition of people to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford everyone an equal start and a fair chance in the race of life. I think that's still a pretty good directive. I, you know, of all the different quotes from the sainted Abraham Lincoln, I hadn't heard that. That's a good one. That's a very good, and that's from which? It was this 1863 message to Congress. Well, I have to keep a note of that. That's a good one. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and uh, we're talking about a new idea, uh, and the, the book is called A Few Thousand Dollars. Robert Friedman and the subtitle is Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. I like that that picture of sparking prosperity. You know, it doesn't come from, as we've said, you know, the top down. It comes from... People being able to, I mean, if they have a little bit, sparking means you need a little bit of gasoline. If you don't have any fuel, you ain't going anywhere. I think that's a big part of the the problem. Um, tell us about the, uh, well, I did want to ask, actually, we on this show we've discussed the idea, which even Richard Nixon suggested, a universal basic income, a UBI. That idea seems to be gaining in popularity now. How does what we're talking about here differ from that approach. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I would uh, tab what I'm uh, proposing, universal basic savings, universal basic assets. It's a form of universal 
basic income. You know, I do think people need more income, particularly non-labor income in an economy where wages have stagnated, expenses continue to go up. There's a financialization of the economy, uh, which I Mm. think has not clearly necessarily added value, definitely has added cost. Um, Benefited a few. (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, again, I think we're spending a lot of money in the federal tax code. I don't talk about state tax codes, but same way, most states draft off the federal. Um, There's probably another $100 billion a year of spending that uh, through the tax code um, for, you know, in in the claim of building household wealth that, again, is really an investment in inequality. The private sector is doing a fine job of generating wealth inequality. We (laughs) ought not be subsidizing that. (laughs) Oh, but we are. Oh, are we ever subsidizing that? And I was, you know, as as an old traditional Democrat myself, I go back to FDR, who had public works jobs, which did help a lot of people. And I'm guessing one of the benefits of that was that by, you know, yes, this was top down and it gave people work, but then they could generate and have some money and perhaps some savings so that they could become more independent themselves. And I can't help but think there was uh, racial discrimination in those programs. I don't know, but I just have a feeling there was. That's right. And what I should say is that um, while I think there's a lot to universal basic income ideas and experimentation, um, universal basic assets or universal basic savings uh-huh. has already answered a lot of the questions that we haven't yet been able to answer about universal basic income. Uh-huh. For example, how are we going to uh, uh, finance it? Um, again, we're already spending <laughs> to build uh, family wealth and family assets. We just need to do that in a smarter and fairer way um, that um, we also, I think, universal basic assets, universal basic savings evidences more respect um, and actually more demands of people, you know, that it, it uh, we look at people as assets themselves, as job creators, as skilled workers as homeowners. Um, we, you know, we ask a pro, uh, pro quo. I mean, you don't have to save in these programs, but you only get matched if you save. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So it's a high expectation strategy. And <clears throat> again, we've had pilots of this yes. for the last 40 years, rigorously tested, and really, examples from 250 years of history, we know how to do this uh, in a way that a lot of the universal basic income uh, pilots are, not, are now just beginning. I do think we already know um, from, for instance, studies of the earned income tax credit that people generally spend money well. <laughs> 
um, and and different people obviously spend it in different way and save it. Yes, uh, people like to save. I think I don't know, but I want to delve into the weeds a little bit here. The in- individual development accounts. There was a five-year demonstration project, and what what did we learn from that about the efficacy of these individual development accounts? So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we uh, had about uh, 2,600 people uh, in those 14 programs throughout the country, uh, urban and rural, on, in Native communities, in urban areas. Um, again, we found that about half of the participants, uh, m- almost all of whom were... Uh, at the poverty line or or a little above it, um, did save a, uh, an, a significant amount and were able to purchase one of these eligible assets, that is home or home repair, business, um, education, uh, that even the poorest uh, participants saved Again, not because it was easy, but because it was the price of stability and hope. Uh, And then on the basis of the outcomes there, uh, we had for 20 years the Assets for Independence program uh, in in the federal government, which provided $20 million a year uh, for individual development accounts. That was eliminated last year. Oh, great. I mean, (laughs) in, uh, you know even though we knew it worked and worked really well. Um, But in a way, that was only uh, legislated as a demonstration program. I think the challenge for us and the opportunity is to go to scale now. We know there are not just hundreds of thousands of people who can profit uh, and, and make a future for themselves and their families through match savings programs, individual development account programs, uh, but there really are millions, yes. tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans who deserve this opportunity, who deserve their fair share uh, of what we're investing already, um, and who can build, you know, the next uh, American economy, one of, of hope and vitality uh, where incomes and wealth are expanding. That sounds... <laughs> quite doable and and reasonable and you know we all know people who feel like oh if i just had a few dollars then i could get ahead then i could get ahead and people are so uh they've taken the initiative they want to do that there's there's no question about that uh so tell us about your um well there were experiments with universal child accounts there was a 30 million dollar foundation funded seeds savings for education enterprise and down payments policy initiative. Tell us about that. What did that yield? How did that work? Um, you know, it, it actually grew out of the American Dream demonstration and in individual development accounts for adults, and we started getting um, folks coming to us and saying, well, can we save for our kids? <laughs> and we said, yeah, of course. And, um, you know, people will do stuff for their kids that they won't even do for themselves. That's for sure. Uh, the savings amounts 
were slightly less uh, the savings in the American Dream demonstration for individual development accounts and adults was about uh, twenty to thirty dollars a month uh, for kids accounts uh, it was about a you know averaged about ten dollars a month um, again when you have a long term objective uh, it's it's hard to take away from the dogs at the door, <laughs> um, you know, and immediate yes. needs. Uh, but uh, we found from that and from experiments, again, now uh, coming bottom up around the country, that, uh, that with child savings accounts, uh, kids go to college and have the ability to, you know, create their own futures. Um, I think my favorite initiative is the Oakland Promise, where uh, the mayor and a unanimous city council, together with the superintendent of schools and a unanimous school board, made the promise that every kid in Oakland will graduate from high school with the expectations, skills, and resources they need for success in college and career. Again, other communities around the country, other states Mm -hmm. are doing this. Maine, for example, has the Harold Alphon Challenge. You have Harold Alphon, um, who couldn't afford to go to college, nevertheless was a very successful insurance entrepreneur, um, and decided that he could do nothing better than to leave his estate to put $500 into a college savings account for every newborn in Maine. Mm -hmm. The state then matches the first $250 in savings on a sliding scale uh, for every kid. Um, Maine's investing in its future. Uh, so are many other states. Um, I think it's time that we take that national. I and, and indeed, uh, Cory Booker yes. has introduced uh, the American Opportunity Accounts Bill that uh-huh. would provide every kid at birth with a thousand dollar educational or opportunity account, and then provide up to two thousand dollars a year. Um, to the poorest kids uh, through the age of majority. Oh, very interesting. And I want to, before we get to the end, I want to definitely make sure to talk about the presidential bench, of which there's a lot of people on it and what they're doing about that. <laughs> but uh, as you mentioned, a lot of states have fairly successful programs to enable more impoverished kids to go to college. How, how is that working out for the states? I mean, you know, people are are. <clears throat> tend to be, uh, uh, you know, reticent to to help people, uh, you know, poor people, just give them money. But how is this working out for these states? What their success rate been that they might be able to say to the federal government, hey, this works, try this? Well, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a long-term bet uh, that states and localities are making. Um, so, so one of the things we tried to do in the seed demonstration was to mimic a 20-year development cycle in five years 
by looking at different cohorts of preschool kids, uh, elementary school, middle school, and then high school. And at each stage, we found that the uh, college savings accounts made a difference. Uh, We did have, in Oklahoma, a totally random assignment control group test of account, uh, child accounts, uh, college education accounts uh, in the um, 529 college savings program there. Uh, And we found even in the first three years, differences in socio-emotional development of the kids uh, and the um, hope of the parents. Again, we know overall that education pays off. Uh, uh, you know, the difference of college or no college can be as high as a million dollars over a career. Um, we need, we need to reinstate that hope and and that investment uh, progress. And I believe that universal child accounts, opportunity accounts can do that. And we have a lot of evidence um, that they work. My guess is probably the most difficult sales of this idea would be to people who have, you know, become fairly rigid in the idea that, well, these uh, self-help programs, the war on poverty, they don't work. They just lock people into poverty. They take away their incentive. I'm I'm hoping that there may be a way to really differentiate that that sounds like what's really different about what you're talking about here is it it's not again top down it's allowing people to to have these investments account, accounts and uh, how how do you think it can be sold to people who have that concern that you know it's just a a giveaway and it's not going to return the money and you know there's always the cost factor you know, we don't think about cost factor when it comes to, to military expenditures. The sky's not even the limit. But uh, how can this be done in terms of the, the national economy? I mean, we must be talking about a lot of money here. But as just as an investment, you know, it's supposed to pay off a little bit. I wonder if you could speak to those issues. Um, a great question. And I think that would be, um, you know, the nature of the objections I would say several things. First of all, this really is for everybody. (laughs) I want everybody, every American, uh, to have this opportunity. Not all will take advantage of it. Um, You know, but this is as much for the white male former factory worker in the Midwest uh, as it is Uh for the aspiring, um, you know, African-American child uh, in an urban area. Uh, It is earned. It is not just given. Uh, I do have, you know, we do suggest endowment accounts for children, but otherwise you have to save uh, in order to get a match. And you have to embark in one of these, you know, high-return strategies, business, uh, education, uh, home ownership, none of those are (laughs) self-executing. You know, people put in their own sweat. 
and uh, and knowledge uh, and apply themselves in that way. These are investments in people, uh, in all of us. And really, right now, the tax benefits are so skewed yeah. that literally almost everybody, 95-6-7% of people will be, on a dollar and cents basis, better off for these kind of investments at the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, only the very wealthiest—you know, the top one percent, top point one percent—will pay higher taxes. But what they get <laughs> is a civilized and hopeful society. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I argue, I really believe this is win-win-win uh, all the way around. And we're not—it's not a really a redistribution program. Uh-huh. It is an, a, a universal investment program. And can it be done being not too much of, I mean, obviously raise taxes somewhat on the uh, people that we're subsidizing now, the one-tenth of one percent, but can it be done relatively revenue neutral? It, it doesn't whack? I think it can be done totally, rel- you know, uh, um, revenue, revenue neut- neutral. We're really? spending this money now, and we're just spending it unfairly uh, and unproductively. Um, We could go further, but we, you know, starting with the $700 billion that we're already spending, we can do a lot. Uh, Again, that averages out to $2,200 for every man, woman, child in the country. We could do this system of generation accounts, universal child accounts, uh, and funded just by taking the estate tax back to where it was in the early 2000s, uh-huh. where still the first million or $2 million in estate is disregarded. Um, but, you know, the, the luckiest among us should be paying taxes so that everybody <laughs> gets a start in life. Let's, you know, people talk about... Uh, negatively about death taxes, I think who better to tax than the dead? You know, they don't complain. Um, if, if they have estates, it shows that they were lucky yeah. um, and did very well. And it's important um, that we enable every kid to grow up with hope and with a nest egg. And I think, I mean, certainly there are uh, the super rich who are in a frenzy of greed, but there are a lot of wealthy people who recognize, you know what, again, if everybody does better, everybody does better. A more stable economy is in everybody's interest. It really is. And, you know, it's not just being nice and altruistic. It's in our interest to have a stable economy. Um, I did want to make sure to ask about, well, actually, I did want to ask about, before I get to presidential stuff, Young people these days are steering away from home ownership for a number of reasons. America's tax policies, as you've mentioned, used to steer people toward home ownership, and it was a great boon to the economy. You lay out a number of reforms that could enable us to generate millions more homeowners each year without spending any more money than we do now in the name of home ownership. How would it work, and why is home ownership still desirable in terms of the national economy? Well, I would make it, uh Two points to to start out here. First is we are the first generation of Americans where 
two generations of kids, you know, millennials and, and Generation Z, are liable to do less well than their parents. I know. Um, it's troubling. We, I think that's a, a stunning indictment. And where student debt is a yoke around oh, the yeah. just aspirations of most kids. Um, and so, and let me, so I think there really is a need now for something like child accounts, uh, universal child accounts, to improve the expectations and chances of, of particularly the younger generations. Home ownership is still the dream, and rightfully so. Um, the key block to home ownership is the ability to assemble uh, a down payment right. on a house. Exactly. Uh, so home accounts um, would, would funded out of some of the two hundred fifty billion dollars a year we provide in housing subsidies, home mortgage interest deduction among them, but only one of them. Uh, you know that, and these home ownership uh, accounts or the, the existing subsidies don't help renters. They don't really help no. would-be home buyers. Uh, they're a reward for owning or really owing <laughs> on the house. Um, I believe that if we simply limit some of the existing upside-down subsidies, we can enable every American... Uh, who wants to, to begin assembling a down payment on a home, uh, and we can drive up the home ownership rates, particularly among uh, people of color who have been locked out yes. of home ownership opportunities. And again, I would beg that we think of homes as more than just bricks and mortar. Um, these uh, these are the crucible in which most mm -hmm. families uh, and household economies develop. Um, uh, also, you know, I talk in the book about um, manufactured housing, uh, mm -hmm. often pejoratively called trailer parks, but it's the largest source of unsubsidized affordable home ownership in the country. It was built on an automobile sales model. So often those communities don't own the land under them. Right. In the last uh, two decades, 200 of those communities have organized um, to buy out right. their communities. So they own the land under them. They can begin to develop equity and assets in, in their homes. Which is clearly a good thing to have that base. All right. It, the, the presidential horse race has begun. I would, it would be great if all the presidential candidates, staffs anyway, read this book to get some ideas. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many great candidates seeking the Democratic Party nomination. Yeah. Do you see any particular interest? You mentioned Cory Booker. He's he's one of many. Uh, what's your sense of the presidential candidates? Have they are they open to this idea? Do you think have they any even talked about this idea? Um, I think several of them are, and I expect more and more will. Uh, you know, when we talk about inequality in this country, we often default 
to income inequality, not recognizing that really wealth inequality underlies income inequality Mm. and is much uh, larger and in many ways more profound even than income inequality. Uh, we're we're getting there. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, yes. you know, has proposed a wealth tax um, for all the right reasons. She's worth listening to on that. Uh, Kamala Harris has proposed uh, essentially a universal basic income notion, a six thousand uh, dollar tax credit for families. That's more on the income side, but it also could feed um, a more equal. Um, wealth opportunity. Uh, again, Cory Booker has the American Opportunity Accounts Act. I expect a lot of the other candidates will be working on different versions of um, basically democratic small d <laughs> yes. wealth building uh, exactly. opportunities. And it's high time we have this conversation. Why, it really is. The book is called A Few Thousand Dollars, Sparking Prosperity for Everyone. And the author is Robert Friedman. And uh, thank you very much. And it's, it's important to get this out there. And, it, you know, there are all kinds of challenges, but a lot of opportunities here. Thank you very Bert, much. thank you so much for the opportunity and for your great questions. Well, thank you. It's about money. 